Welcome back to Water, Water Everywhere, the show that's all about our most precious, finite, non-renewable natural resource, water. I'm one of your hosts, Carly Banghouse, and this was an exciting episode. It was Lila's first time back and first time recording with the guest, and I'm not going to lie to you guys, the sound quality is not perfect, but listen, we are human, we are learning, and this is an an important episode with an important message about water scarcity and drought in the American Southwest. So dive in and get wet as we talk to Dr. Siana Wisnitsky from the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Did I say that right? Yes. (laughs) Should I be saying Dr. Siana? So I was going to say, I I have earned a doctor in front of my name. So I'll point that out in solidarity with Dr. Jill Biden and the Wall Street Journal opinion piece (laughs) about the use of doctor in front of her name. Um, But I don't think anybody actually calls me doctor. So Siana's fine. Well, we'll mention it and we will respect that because that is not hard. That's not easy to do. So, right. (laughs) Hard to do. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. So first of all, how's everyone's day going? Oh, well, actually, first of all, listeners, Lila is back here. Um, What's up everybody? Thank you. Yeah. We missed her. So she's just going to (laughs) be sitting in, um, mostly and interjecting when she needs to, to ask questions, but we are so happy to have her back. So, um, first of all, how is everyone doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's a sunny-ish warm day in Northern Utah, which feels a bit unusual for January, but makes me feel better about being stuck inside if, I don't know, there's a bit of a gross inversion outside, so I'll happily stay in the filtered air inside. Yeah, absolutely. Utah's beautiful. It is, and I can see mountains out my window, which is really nice. Wow. Are you from Utah originally? No, I grew up in northern Illinois, um, but made it to Utah once before, and now again by way of many other places. Okay. Wow. Wow. And... Lila, what's going on in your neck of the woods? Well, we are in three different time zones because uh, I'm currently um, in uh, a little hotel room in Honolulu. I just got off the boat like a day ago. Um, so I am currently readjusting to land life and I have already had two SAE bowls. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm taking a long day and it's, um, I'm pretty sure it's probably closer to afternoon where y'all are, but it is in the morning here. Oh, well, it's my first wait, time wait, wait, what time is it for you? It's all, it's 11. It's not morning, <laughs> but it's morning for me. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like that, like I knew we were not in the same time zone, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize what a big difference it was. No, I that's just okay. I also keep forgetting some people on the boat <laughs> were like flying back to like the East coast and they'll be like, yeah, it's like almost a 12 hour flight. And I was like, what? Mm. Because I'm used to like, if you fly from the West coast, it's like six hours, you know? Um, so I, but I forget that we're like, it, you know, it took me six weeks to get out here. It's, I should know that there was quite a bit of time change in there, but 
I keep forgetting. So here we are. But other than that, I'm in um, a pretty touristy area. So I'm not really going outside a whole ton because I mm-hmm. am afraid of coronavirus. Um, <laughs> As you so, should be. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, well, it was five degrees this morning where I am and I just five. wanted to die. Oh, no. You <laughs> You didn't Sienna, I, I am from Las Vegas and this is my first winter in the East coast. <laughs> I am well, struggling. Yeah. That's different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like the sidewalks are icy and it mm-hmm. feels very like dangerous and yep. I can't just go and walk. <laughs> it's crazy, but you get salt stains on all your shoes. Is that happening yet? Yeah, actually. Okay. Now that you mention it. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyways. Okay. So we are not here to talk about weather. we are actually here to discuss geology and drought in the West. So first and foremost, um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from and what you do? Sure. So I'm Sian Wisnitsky. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I currently live in Northern Utah, about an hour North of Salt Lake. Um, I work technically in Salt Lake city, but haven't been there for about two years, um, due to COVID. Um, I am a geologist with the natural resources conservation service or NRCS, which is an agency within the United States department of agriculture or the USDA. The USDA is a federal US federal agency that contains 20 or federal department that contains 29 different agencies and generally provides national leadership regarding food, agriculture, natural resources, um, rural development and nutrition. Um, And they operate in several different mission areas, which include things like farm production and conservation, food safety, um, natural resources and environment and some others. So the NRCS, or again, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, is an agency underneath the USDA Farm Production and Conservation Mission Area. And the NRCS provides technical and financial assistance to private landowners to maintain or adopt conservation practices on their land. So mainly farmers and ranchers, but also individual communities, counties, and tribes. The NRCS also manages several other programs focused on emergency watershed protection resulting from natural disasters, watershed planning, and dam and debris basin rehabilitation. And we operate on a state-by-state basis with several other centers throughout the country that provide specialized services like a soil mechanics testing lab and technology support centers. So my role, again, I'm a geologist. I'm in the Utah State Office of the NRCS, which is based in Salt Lake City. And I additionally provide services for the other Western states on request. Um, most generally, my position acts as kind of a consultant across all programs in the agency. So anytime there's a question about the history of the landscape, how the landscape may continue to evolve with or without practices that we put in place, or the role of water in the landscape, I can have a role in that project. I also consult on if specific earth materials, so rocks, sediments, and soils can be used in construction practices, or if there are any problems with proposed engineering designs regarding the surrounding earth materials. A lot of the work that I do helps our agency help agricultural producers 
find and conserve water. So for example, well and spring development feasibility reports and reports regarding irrigation pond construction, just to name a few. So that's kind of a broad stroke of who I currently am and what I currently do. Okay, that is so much to unpack, but it's amazing that you got there. How did you get there? And you are a doctor, so obviously that probably took a while. So yeah, start me. Can we start from like undergrad? Okay. Also, um, yeah, go ahead. That you, you have that spiel down. That was like yeah. clear, concise, mm-hmm. excellent. Yeah. Not yeah, this, time. Is, <laughs> yeah. this isn't your first rodeo, is it? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So starting with undergrad, well, that'll actually start us earlier, but I'll get into that. So I went into undergrad um, thinking I wanted to do something regarding medicine and was really drawn to kind of um, mind-body connection. So I was thinking about doing something regarding neuroscience, something like that, until I realized that there could be a lot of time spent inside. And if I went into like a surgical route, a lot of time spent in a hospital, and that was not appealing to me. And I was kind of thinking back on other things I could do in my undergraduate department at Amherst College in Massachusetts. So shout out to the Northeast. Nice. Um, <laughs> they had a great geology department. And so I looked into that and then remembered a video we watched in seventh grade science class about this volcanology married couple who like went to Hawaii and poked the lava with sticks and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> I, that was the only earth science background I had in school growing up until I got to college, which is something I have a lot of thoughts about. But then mm-hmm. I got to college um, and I took intro to geology and realized that was the science that I could do that was kind of outside and can be very hands-on. Um, and I stuck with it. And so I ended up getting a um, Bachelor of Arts degree in geology and also German um, from Amherst College. And so I got a lot of jokes from people of, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to go study rocks in Germany? And uh, <laughs> that'll come up again later during the doctor right. part. Um, <laughs> And um, I did a senior undergraduate honors thesis there, um, which exposed me to kind of self-led research, um, field-based research. And that was a great opportunity and led me to do a master's degree as well. So following my undergrad, I moved up here to Utah about half an hour from where I'm sitting now to Utah State University, um, where I started my master's of science degree. And For that research project, I studied the history of glaciers on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington and in the Southern Alps of New Zealand around 20-ish thousand years ago um, and what signatures they left on the landscape and how we could kind of constrain the timing of glacier ice advancing and retreating. Um, So that was, again, another fabulous research opportunity, but at this point, I still had no direction about what careers existed regarding my interests and my degrees and what I could be doing. Um, We had a lot of oil, gas, and mining recruiters coming to Utah State University um, to get students into summer internships and offer them positions and stuff. And I knew that wasn't the route I wanted to take my background. So I was like, well, I do really like field work and independent research. I guess I'll do a PhD because that's the next thing in the academic progression. Mm -hmm. So 
I moved to London, in the United Kingdom. Um, Ooh, we <laughs> yeah, love that. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I said I've been around a lot of places before settling back in Utah. Um, but yeah, I went to London for a doctoral degree. So I did my PhD at Queen Mary University of London, um, during which I studied specific glacial landforms in the Southern Alps, or not the Southern Alps, sorry, the European Alps of Austria and Switzerland. And so this goes to the, are you going to study rocks in Germany? My answer was no. Turns out I'm going to study sediments in Austria. Okay, close enough. Close right. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I lived in England for three years and then took kind of about one more year to finish up my thesis and get that all squared away. Um, the last couple of months that I was in England, I finally had to find a job that wasn't related to getting more degrees because um, that was kind of the capstone and I didn't want to do that again. Mm. Um, I realized the academic lifestyle wasn't really something I was looking for, um, but again, didn't really have much guidance on how to look for positions. So I found myself looking at federal hiring websites and there was a position called geologist in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I was like, wow, I would definitely move back to Utah. Um, and my partner at the time, now we're married, um, was still in Utah as well working. And so I was like, yeah, well, that, how convenient to move back to Utah and be closer to him. Um, and kind of threw my hat in the ring. Turns out it had to have been an absolutely right person, right place, right time situation. Because I got that job. I hadn't applied for many other jobs. Yep. <laughs> and uh, moved back to Utah. And I've been here since. So I'm about... Wow five over five years with the NRCS now in my current position. That's amazing. Cause like it can take a very long time to get into those federal positions. It took me two yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> like, so that is amazing. Yeah. And I didn't realize until, you know, I was trying to help other people and current students and stuff, consider careers and jobs, give them some sort of, some of that mentorship that I never had. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I realized like, I, I was just super lucky or yeah, the exact yeah. right person for this position when they needed to hire it. Um, you clicked the right buttons yeah, in the right order. Yep. It's pretty yep. much what happens. <laughs> I think that's part of it though. Yeah. Just like mm -hmm. right place, right time, who, you know, yeah. 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 That's Definitely. amazing. That's such a great story. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go to Austria and look at soil. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it was it was a really cool experience. And we stayed in some of these absolutely fantastic, like high mountain European hiking huts and stuff that mm. cooked us dinner. And yeah, we met some great people. It was I spoke German a lot. And yeah, the Austrians were like flabbergasted that this American <laughs> girl knew German. And I was like, oh, how convenient. <laughs> yeah, that was wow. my next question. Are you are you still fluent in German? Um, I don't think I'm fluent. I think if you drop me off in a German speaking country for a couple of weeks, I'd do absolutely fine and pick a lot of it back up. But um, I just don't have an opportunity to practice that much here. Oh, not in Utah? Wild. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. Okay. That is, that's amazing. Um, and so cool that you can say you're a doctor. <laughs> like, I. Yeah. One of the only reasons I've considered continuing my education is for that alone, which is <laughs> ridiculous, but that's so cool. Um, so can we talk about how, like, um, I'm not sure if a lot of our listeners are aware 
and how closely related geology and hydrology are to each other and your experience with that and how you tie your geology background into water currently. Sure. Um, so something else that I like to remind everyone, or maybe they haven't heard this before, is that mm-hmm. I at least think geology is the building block for understanding how everything on our planet functions and how our place or what our place as humans is on earth. And if we can't understand how our physical planet formed functions and continues to change, I don't know how we can really understand ourselves and our role here. Um, So that's kind of a big, big picture. But if we focus more on geology and water, um, water, interacts with every sphere of our planet, um, as does geology. And if you look more specifically at the subdiscipline of geomorphology, which is generally considered landscape change and landscape evolution, a lot of that pertains to how water moves through the landscape, how it changes the landscape. Um, so how it can kind of erode certain landforms, move sediment and rocks and materials around and leave them somewhere else how it can flow in and out of hard rock or what we call bedrock. um, And then how we can extract that or use surface water sources for what we need to do as people on the planet. Um, So they're kind of intrinsically linked, um, but I am by no means an expert on hydrology or hydrogeology um, and consider myself more of a generalist who happens to work in kind of a water and agricultural sphere. Um, So generally the water cycle, like it rains somewhere and that's either deposited on a man-made surface or deposited on, you know, the soil or the rocks or the earth and that water has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. So it'll flow generally downhill or it can flow down into the rocks. It can flow down into the soil. um, And it moves from there in a lot of ways that depend on what the rocks are doing, what kind of rocks they are, what type of soil is there. Um, The ecology of the area plays a huge part in how water moves and how water is used. Um, So it's all, it all kind of comes together in terms of like, if we understand geology, we're going to better be able to understand water in the hydrologic cycle. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's all the same thing pretty much. I think so. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, we, we did an episode around Halloween about water witches and, um, water divining, (laughs) if you will. Mm -hmm. And so we, um, if the listeners remember, we quickly explained what an aquifer is because there's, um, I don't think it's not something people think of often is groundwater and how we Mm -hmm. use it. And, especially out here in on the east coast where there are so many wells but where you are like trying to access that groundwater is so much more difficult and um i mean it's just being depleted more and more and more so Mm -hmm. yeah i don't think people think about the relationship as much as they should right i definitely don't Yeah, Lila's our um, resident ocean expert. (laughs) So you're used to water being around. (laughs) Yeah, but no land, yeah. 
Right. So I don't know. It's I'm really enjoying uh, working with companies, but also talking to really neat scientists like you, and just like learning how the two things actually interact: water and land. Crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like how, like what is a day to day for your job? Like how is like water playing a, a role in what you do? Because I know you also mentioned that you. I don't know if what the difference is if you work with the with the Southwest Drought Learning Network if you're a member how how does that work? Um, I'll start with that part. So the Southwest Drought Learning Network um, is part of a USDA climate hub, um, which generally seeks to bring together practitioners and water users and managers, researchers and other folks interested or playing a role in water. Um, brings them all together to, together to think more about drought, water use, water conservation, um, education about drought and water use, things like that. And so I joined the Southwest Drought Learning Network maybe about a year ago um, and have contribute have been contributing to kind of some of their brainstorming on how to best inform people about drought and drought mitigation strategies. Um, And they have a couple other working groups um, regarding case histories of water use and water management, collecting relevant data about drought, um, helping different states develop drought mitigation plans and strategies and things like that. And so I joined that. I don't remember how I even heard about it, but I was like, this sounds important. I think I'll join. And it's really opened up a lot of great opportunities to Um, work with people throughout the region um, to kind of think about some of these big picture questions. And it's really great to have a mix of kind of researchers, data managers, water managers, um, you know, people like me who work very much at a field-based level, working with individual agricultural producers. It's bringing together tons of different people who all have their own specialties and ideas and backgrounds to contribute to the conversation of drought in the Southwest, which has been a really great opportunity. Um, but if uh, I kind of take Do you have a, to work for the USDA to um, join? No, you do not have to work for the USDA to join. I think in order to join, you just have to work in some water-related sphere and- oh. Get in touch with your network. Yeah. Um, And so if you go to the, I think it's, yeah, the USDA Climate Hub's website. I think I have um, it it up right here. Yeah, it has them (laughs) sorted by region and just get in touch with them and be like, I'm interested in joining. Can I learn more? And like, I'm sure they would love it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Very exciting. It's really cool. Um, But yeah, that's just kind of a little side thing I do that goes beyond the scope of my normal job duties. But is super important and has been a great opportunity. Um, and I guess like, so you mentioned like doing it on a state by state basis, but, you know, a lot of the, the Southwest United States are all so linked, like climate wise, how, what are the differences state by state? Is it just like, regulation-wise differences, or are there different solutions for different areas? 
Um, a lot of that's something we discussed yesterday in our meeting, actually, and a lot of it has to do with policies and funding availability on a state by state level based on individual states legislatures. Um, and so the funding and resources available to Utah, for example, may be different than those available to Arizona to consider drought, develop their drought strategies and things like that. If we also look at um, some of the individual sectors that drought may be affecting, and I can speak to agriculture most closely, um, the agriculture of different states or different regions is gonna vary. Um, so we have a lot of alfalfa in Utah, but we also have little pockets of sp very specific agriculture. Like we have a community that grows almost exclusively melons. Um, I'm sitting on the side of what's called Utah's famous fruit highway, which is known for peaches. Um, which people wouldn't consider. Um, no. But there are little <laughs> peaches. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, there are all these little things that kind of come together on how how states can manage their drought response strategies differently. Um, a lot of it has to come down to climate regimes as well. And so in Utah, we have what people picture as like the beautiful red rock dry desert in the south. But then we also have, you know, these huge snowy mountains throughout much of the state. Um, and so we may have kind of a different climatologic regime than someone somewhere like Arizona that right. has more of a monsoonal signature and they get these huge rainstorms that we only just catch a little bit of and can't rely as much on winter snowpack, whereas we have to rely quite a bit on that. And mm -hmm. that all kind of comes into play for why things are kind of considered either on a state by state basis or on more of a regional basis. Are you, do you think like some states have more of an urgency or are more like proactive about the, the drought crisis in the West? You know, I don't, I don't know if I have enough experience to speak to that. I know, I know there are a lot of big picture conversations taking place, um, but I haven't really been part of that. I think something that's more important to point out, well, not more important, but something I know a bit more about is kind of some specific responses with communities or subsectors of industries and things regarding drought. So for example, I know that um, Nevada recently put into law that Vegas can no longer have non-functional grass. Um, right which is fantastic, but mm -hmm. that's not all of Nevada is not saying that. And Utah has not said that at all. In fact, some counties think it's a great idea to keep building green golf courses. Um, oh my so, God, if I can just burn all of the golf courses. I don't want right? to upset anyone, but like, come on. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't I don't know kind of the bigger picture, you know, which, which states are doing what, um, but I do hear about these these individual stories coming from different areas from mm -hmm. time to time. For example, there are a couple of communities in Utah this past year that have said that there can be no further development unless there have been previously assigned water rights for it. Um, mm -hmm. So the town of Oakley, for example, said, yeah, no one else is allowed to build a house because there are no more water rights to give out. So until we figure out how we can secure more reliable water and for the long term, we will not be developing further. Wow. Um, so it's good to wow. see those kind of strict actions taking place. But again, those are on kind of small scale levels. 
what is happening on a larger scale? Do you like maybe not even state by state, but like what's what is being done to mitigate it? Um, there's been a I, what I've noticed is there's been a lot of an educational push recently to address individual water usage. So your household or you as you know yourself or communities, um, which is great and is completely needed. Um, what I haven't heard as much about is considering industrial water usage, um, and in the West, particularly for things like oil and gas extraction and mining, um, as well as agriculture, how much water is going to these sectors and how can we start addressing that on a larger scale? I haven't heard a lot of kind of large scale things going to that, but from my perspective with the NRCS, I can say that like there are groups working on the water conservation issue regarding agriculture and individual communities. And I think agriculture is something we need to address on a big scale for water conservation and kind of general conservation. Um, we know that animal agriculture is one of the biggest contributors to our warming climate. And so you hate to tell someone whose family has been farming, you know, the land down the street for tens of generations to stop their operation. Um, but I'm not quite sure how to reconcile like that type of animal production or specific crop production and its water usage. If we think about the future of how we can best kind of conserve water, help our ecosystem and continue to feed people in a way that kind of weighs all of those factors together. And that's something that I struggle with quite a bit is I'm, mm -hmm. I'm talking to these people for work who their lives and livelihood are completely based on farming alfalfa that goes to feed livestock that eventually might mm -hmm. feed humans. Um, but I can't help but wonder if there are other ways that we can consider what crops are grown on what parts of land and reducing meat consumption throughout the Western world and things like that. Um, right. So I think that's a big issue to tackle is how we will consider agriculture in the future. Absolutely. And I think what's frustrating is the awareness surrounding this issue when we put out like infographics on like, oh, take a, take a five minute shower or like turn the faucet off while you're brushing your teeth. It's like, that's not the the actual problem here like that and that's what the general public see like oh, okay I should be doing less and less and less and less it's it's great that people are starting to think like that but that is like nowhere near what needs to be done on a global scale but right and I do I think that that's a good starting point for a lot mm -hmm. of people um is that baseline individual education and we're not, we're never going to be able to reach everybody. We have to admit that. Right. So that's right. fine. And I do wonder if kind of helping educate about and support those individual actions, like, can you take a slightly shorter shower? Can you wear your clothes more before washing them? Things like that. I wonder, and I hope that that will kind of spark people to think more about water use overall and maybe prompt them to do a little bit more research on other ways to conserve water, not just through themselves, but in their community or attend a city council meeting 
and ask about what's being done for water conservation or learn more about actions they can do to encourage conservation in their area. Maybe do some more research about industrial water use um, and kind of lobby representatives to support conservation or to put further restrictions on kind of these larger scale water users. So education's a great start. Like you said, it's individual actions aren't gonna solve our problem, but I hope that it at least kind of sparks something in, in some group of people that are gonna take it a little bit further. Right. Yeah, it's it can be disheartening because I mean, like numbers wise, at least like with, with Lake Mead, we're looking at not too long from now, there won't be a Lake Mead. Right. So yeah. what do what I guess what do we do? Like how do do we sit back and then like let there's that whole debate on like, okay, well, if we run out of these resources, whatever, we have technology to save us. Like, I don't think that's feasible with water, um, but I just, it doesn't seem like it's being taken into account that this is like a really serious issue at West. There's so many people that live there. So yep. I don't know. Yeah, and it's hard to not go into a spiral of climate dread if you're yeah. someone who does understand the implications of what's happening, um, Yeah, which is going to happen to most of us. But there are people out there who are, who are doing absolutely amazing work regarding research and modeling on climate and drought and water implications and things like that. There are people out there who are doing the science communication part, trying to reach everybody and let them know that this is a problem that we need to pay attention to. There are people who work in the political sphere who care deeply about this and know mm -hmm. how to work within the political realm to hopefully gain more support. Um, and there are people taking on, you know, the big companies, the big issues, the big water users, the big polluters. Um, and so more, more power to them. That's not me, but sometimes you hear those stories and you're like, someone out there's doing it and we need to help support them however we can. Right. So there's a glimmer of hope within the climate dread, but it's hard. Yes. And, you know, it's, yeah, probably not healthy to like think about this stuff all day long either. <laughs> Just like... <laughs> No, there's um, <laughs> there's a really good joke going around the marine science community right now, and it's like, how do we save the world? Um, stop using plastic straws, and also don't spill 11 million gallons of crude oil into Antarctic waters. You know, so it's like, um, <laughs> which right. I think uh, most of us haven't done, uh, and I think that, which is funny, but um, it just puts a pretty good view on it. Like, yeah, we can kind of work towards things collectively, um, but at the end of the day, those. So maybe it's the corporations that can fix things. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's really, that's where the responsibility should lie, but agreed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a tough so, one. <laughs> as far as though drought mitigation, like what, are there things being done that like maybe don't work that are maybe like a waste of resources and time? 
You know, that's a good question too. Things that don't work. Um, I think on a baseline level is being antagonistic towards people. If they're Mm -hmm. not, you know, conserving what you want or doing what you want doesn't work. It usually just further sows division. Um, And we've seen that with kind of land rights issues in the West. We've seen that with water rights issues in the West. Um, There's something positive that can be said about collaborating with as many different types of people as possible. But if you don't handle that in the right way, you can kind of further divides. Um, So yeah, being antagonistic isn't going to be a way to reach people. Um, Mm -hmm. And and science-based education is never going to reach everyone. Um, In terms of specific strategies that do or don't work, You know, I don't know. I'd have to think about that more. I'm not sure. Okay. That is something that we can all think about more. (laughs) 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 Okie dokie. Sorry to the listeners if there's like a weird (laughs) transition here. We um, had some technical difficulties, but we are back and... Where did we leave off? I'm trying to think. (laughs) Who knows? Whatever. (laughs) But, oh, we were talking about, wait, (laughs) this is me and Lila most of the time. What were we talking about? We got off track. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I think we were talking about like what maybe does, oh, like the, the future and how, um, we're not too far away from not having any water left out West. Um, I wasn't going to ask this, but I was just thinking, do you, well, is California included in the Southwest drought learning network? No. Okay. No. Wonder, I believe like, we're Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico. Okay. Okay. I was just thinking like if, um, desal desalinization, like, is a topic of conversation in California, at least. Or, I mean, I know it has so many challenges, but <laughs> I don't know. But there, that's one of those cool ideas that people are trying to figure out if it is actually feasible. And so, I think that's one of the neat things that comes together with bringing diverse people together to tackle these problems and someone's going to have an idea that may work, which is awesome For sure, and exciting. So if we can make things like desalinization, which seemed crazy at first feasible, that's so cool. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, they do it on boats, like it's happens on a small scale. So <laughs> it's definitely possible, but I've like, in the past, I've heard like, oh, it's just, sorry, I heard like, it's too expensive, or we just don't have the resources, but what else are we going to spend our money on if not like water to survive, you know? Yeah, and that's, that's maybe point. something that can be leveraged towards kind of the big water users and big water use industries is if you're taking all of this water and you're making tons of money off of using this water, is there some way to encourage or mandate even mm-hmm. um, that some of that 
funding goes into strategies for conservation or creative water uses. I don't know. I don't, I don't know the yeah. politics behind any of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> um, what do you think like the future does look like when we, when we reach a point of no return, like hmm. out West? Um, I mean, this goes back to this climate doom, climate dread thing, but there mm -hmm. are going to be problems. Um, I'm not well versed in the modeling results and their implications, but the West is going to get drier um, and that's going to change a lot of people's lifestyles and livelihoods, mm -hmm. whether they like it or not. Um, it's going to change the ecology of the region. It may bring more natural disasters related to both lack of water and unexpected excess water. So similar to the unprecedented fire seasons we've had recently, um, as well as more flash flooding and yeah. more unpredictable weather patterns and events. Um, so that's all going to become part of it. And there's, if we look at kind of my local level, there's research being done here in Utah about the Great Salt Lake continuing to dry up and lose water and what that can mean ecologically for the lake and surrounding areas and for dust production and dust transport throughout the region. Because we'd be exposing this lake bed that is usually covered to the air um, mm -hmm. and it's a windy area and that's all gonna get picked up and blown around and moved places. Um, so as a resident of Northern Utah, I, I do worry about the future of this place. Um, and then there are some other implications that may seem kind of superficial, but are important to a lot of people. And one of that is one of the main tourist industries of the West, which is skiing and related snow sports. Mm -hmm. I'm an avid backcountry and resort skier who mm. was able to fortunately find a place to work and live in that I wanted to live in specifically because of the recreation opportunities. So I can certainly feel that one. I mean, I, I may not be able to ski eventually. I, it may be too hot to go out mountain biking unless it's done in the middle of the night. Like there are ways that it may affect people's lives that, um, I think a lot of people probably take for granted. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is, it's terrifying in a way, but yeah, again, we don't want the, the doom and gloom. That's kind of where we left off. <laughs> right? I brought it right back there. Well, I'll bring it right back to, I said, I'm not well-versed in the modeling and implications and how to use that data, but there yeah. are people who are. So there are people who yes. are working on this and who have dedicated their lives to answering the questions that, you know, we in this group don't have answers to. Um, Definitely. But there are fantastic people doing important work. Well, if you or someone you know does that important work, please reach out to us and tell us what's <laughs> going to happen or come on the show. <laughs> um, oh, wow. I have a question. Yeah. Um, so I feel like in you know, at least in the ocean world, but also just in the environmental world, the times that we have seen policy become effective and we've seen results from policy, um, it's when it's on these like local small scales and we have many people like you who work on the community level of things um, kind of implementing and um, helping write that policy or at least advise on it. Um, and I was just wondering if there was, at least in your very small realm, 
sorry, not very small, but just like your little sphere uh, in Utah. Do, are you finding that there is movement towards these like smaller, more localized policy solutions or is everything still kind of focused on the big picture? Yes. So mm -hmm. this is a this is a promising way to look at it. Um, there mm -hmm. is a lot of there are a lot of things that have been done on the local level that are expanding. Mm -hmm. um, and if I take that to my specific position and my specific agency, um, one of the best ways to promote conservation and in our discussion, water conservation is to show its success. And so if you have one landowner who can sign up to a water conservation project, whether that's converting from flood irrigation to drip irrigation, for example, or um, using their water in more creative ways or storing it in ponds so that they're not losing as much in the use or lose water situation of water rights in the West. And you can show success for that one landowner he or she is going to talk to the neighbors and talk to the buddy and talk to other people in their conservation district or their farming group. Um, and you may get more people signing up because of that. You more, may get more people curious. And we have seen a huge uptick in producers signing up for some of our programs that relate to water conservation. So irrigation conversions, um, or finding alternative sources for water, like checking if well development is feasible or building irrigation ponds to store their water better. Um, we have communities signing up to our watershed and flood prevention operations program. Um, and that's mm -hmm. become really popular since it's been enacted in the past couple of years. Um, and so that program will provide financial and technical assistance to help communities and counties um, and tribes protect, improve, and develop water and land resources in what we consider small watersheds. So watersheds up to 250,000 acres. Um, and that program can be used for flood prevention, damage and risk reduction, um, watershed protection. So controlling erosion and sediments can be used in, in part for public recreation, for fish and wildlife habitat enhancements, um, agricultural water management, sometimes for municipal and industrial water supply, um, improvements to water quality and water management. It can do a lot. And since we've, since the USDA has kind of revealed this new pool of funding um, for states to use through the NRCS for this watershed program, we've had a lot of interest in that. So there are communities who are thinking about it and are excited about getting the help that they need um, mm -hmm. and getting kind of the expertise to learn how to best develop their water resources while conserving them and ensuring productivity in the future. Um, so it's like, from my perspective with the NRCS, there's, there's a lot that can be done from, you know, one success story and kind of promoting that. Um, and that's really promising to see. And I mean, oftentimes you're not going to get an old rancher and an old farmer in Utah um, admitting that climate change is real because those are kind of some scary words for a lot of people, mm -hmm. but you mm -hmm. will have them telling you a story about how when they were little and, you know, their grandfather was farming the land, they didn't have to think about this at all. And it was so much more productive and it was easier. And how can we find them more water? And you're like, ah, well, here we go. We'll start with you. We won't mm -hmm. use the words that you don't want to hear, but you're telling us what we already know is the situation. Wow. That's so interesting. 
That is. You have to use a little bit of psychology, I guess, to reach some people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Multidisciplinary funny. solutions are the key. Yes. That's how yep. I feel. <laughs> In a nutshell, <laughs> that's everything that we just talked about. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, we'll have to start wrapping up, but um, this is something I like to ask myself if like you didn't have any restraints or rules whatever like what's what solutions would you implement to mitigate drought and depleting water resources maybe on a local level like where you are or even bigger picture um you know that's a hard one and like I said I don't know the intricacies of like limiting or I don't know, making industries accountable for large water use and things like Mm -hmm. that. I'd like to see that, but my thoughts on that stop there for now until I learn more. Um, But I'd like to see so much more education about drought and water usage, both through schools at all levels, but to Mm -hmm. adults as well. I feel like um, education and kind of science communication is sometimes lost towards older populations. Um, And there have been major strides recently in climate education, but we need to continue working on how to reach everyone and how to convey the climate crisis to those who may not quite believe in it, but again, who may see some of the effects like decreased rain or decreased snow. Um, And then something I mentioned before, it's really tough to say coming from an agricultural sector, um, but we need to start rethinking how we grow food and where we grow food Again, I don't want to tell someone that their family operation for generations needs to end or fundamentally change, but we really need to rethink um, animal production and the crops that feed them and the typical American view of meat um, and how we can kind of best use that land going into the future um, while still providing high quality nutrients to everyone who needs them. Um, I think we also, regarding climate generally, but water as well, and particularly in the West, need to think about the increased amount of people who are moving here or who are growing up here. Um, Major communities in the West are seeing unprecedented levels of population growth. And if you have more people, you're going to have to be using more of your natural resources. And so I don't know how how to address that, but we need to start thinking more about if this growth continues with the trend that it is, how are we going to address everybody's needs um, in equitable ways as well? You know, rich people are usually going to be able to get what they want, Mm -hmm. but how do we, how do we get underrepresented communities, the same services, the same ability to access, you know, water and nutritious food and things like that. Um, So I think there's a lot that has to happen in the West with addressing, you know, nearly rampant population growth. And I don't know how to do that, but I want to see that addressed. Well, you have my vote Absolutely. for president. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't want the job, but I'll take the vote. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's an amazing answer. And if only... <laughs> that's yeah. It. yeah thank you so much um yeah so thank you for sharing your knowledge with us and um you know for keeping it real that's how 
Lila and I keep it. So we appreciate that. <laughs> um, and thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Water, Water Everywhere. Be mm-hmm. sure to follow us on Instagram at water.watereverywhere for new episodes and links. And please, please, please follow us on Spotify. Thank you. And we will be back next week. Bye. Oh, hold up. Sianna, um, is there any uh, social media or anything that you would like oh, to tell yeah, our uh, <laughs> listeners about? Or uh, um, where can they find you? Do you want to be found? You don't have to be found. <laughs> I am <laughs> I am not a huge social media user, but sure. I do have a Instagram page that I use just to kind of showcase some cool projects I work on or what I actually do. Um, and so you can find me at, at more Moraines, M-O-R-E-M-O-R-A-I-N-E-S. <laughs> what a Tell great everyone name. what a mor- moraine is really quick. Um, a moraine <laughs> is a glacial landform. So if you've ever been in an area that has a glacier or had a glacier in the past and you kind of see across the valley, a big ring of rocks or sediment that's kind of a hill and shows maybe where that ice was at some point. That's kind of all the material the glacier was pushing and just kind of left in that one spot when it started melting and retreating backwards. So you usually get these either lines or kind of half circles or something like that shapes in the valley that show the previous positions of the ice as kind of these hills. So cool. Awesome. That's what I that's what I got my doctor degree in. So yeah. Yay. <laughs> okay. If you're um from the state of New York, Long Island is a couple of moraines out there. Oh wow. So cool. Awesome. What a great name. Um excellent. Thank you so much. I feel like I learned so much today. And yeah, me too. All of our listeners did as well. We really, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Of course. And I, I'm going to look into joining the Southwest Drought Learning Network. Yep. All right. I encourage it. (laughs) Well, thank you again so much. And um, you are welcome back here anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you too. All right. Take care.